Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 404 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I am your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find awesome writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm usually here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the Matt Mac Chronicles, uh, the Adaban Cipher series, and her latest book, The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. Now, last week, we had to veer away from our regular programming, and I mentioned it was because, well, you know, sometimes life just gets in the way. Well, the reality is that I have moved house, and that is a pretty big undertaking, one that involves a countless number of boxes, as many of you will know, and importantly, a new connection of the internet at the new place. So this was all supposed to go to plan, but as we know, the best laid plans can go awry. I was supposed to have the internet connected by now so that we could bring you this podcast with minimal interruption. However, Telstra cancelled my internet order for no good reason and also didn't inform me. So we then had to start the order all over again. So then Telstra then cancelled that second order as well and didn't tell me for no good reason they cancelled it. And now we're hoping for third time lucky. As you know, Alison and I do our very best to bring you this podcast faithfully every week, but sometimes things like this happen. So instead, we're bringing you a wonderful story session. We hope you enjoy it. So our competition this week is awesome. I've actually already bought this book for several people, but we have three copies of The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. I am a big fan of Walter Isaacson and I think his books are absolutely fantastic. So anyway, this is The Code Breaker. The best-selling author of Leonardo da Vinci and Steve Jobs returns with a gripping account of how the pioneering scientist Jennifer Doudna along with her colleagues and rivals, launched a revolution that will allow us to cure diseases, fend off viruses, and enhance our children. In the spring of 2012, Jennifer Doudna and her collaborators turned a curiosity of nature into an invention that will transform the future of the human race, an easy-to-use tool that can edit DNA. Known as CRISPR, it opened a brave new world of medical miracles and moral questions. Should we use our new evolution hacking powers to make us less susceptible to viruses and eliminate dreaded disorders? Should we allow our parents, if they can afford it, to enhance the IQ or height or memory or muscles of their kids? Jennifer became a leader in wrestling with these moral and policy issues. Her life story illustrates that the key to innovation is connecting basic science to our everyday lives, moving discoveries from our labs to our bedsides in ways that respect our moral values. So we have three copies of The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson and entries close on the 24th of May. So just go to writerscentercomau slash win for your chance to win. Just follow the instructions. That's writerscentercomau slash win. And of course, one thing that we can bring you faithfully every week is my favorite, the word of the week. So listeners, are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is lysophobia. 
lysophobia. That's L-Y-S-S-O, phobia. So obviously, it's a phobia or a fear. Does anyone out there suffer from lysophobia? According to the Macquarie Dictionary, lysophobia is a pathological fear of insanity or of rabies. It's from the Greek Lysa, who was the spirit of mad rage and frenzy. There you go. Lysophobia. And that was the word of the week. In this story session, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend. And listening to the first chapter, we hope, is like letting you sample something while you're busy doing your chores or on your commute. We hope that you'll be able to discover new authors this way, especially if you aren't able to get to a bookshop as regularly as you like. This way, we've brought the bookshop straight to your ears. This week, I've chosen Grace Under Pressure by Tori Hashka. This is a hilarious and honest book about motherhood and parenting in the age of social media and the constant scrutiny and the pressure to do it all. Tori is better known as a food writer and she's written several cookbooks, but this is her debut novel. Here's the blurb so you can get an idea of what the book is about. Grace Harkness looks like she has it all, two beautiful children, four cookbooks under her belt, and an idyllic beachside home. Hashtag blessed. But add another baby on the way, oops, a spouse that is nowhere to be seen, and a relentless list of things she should be doing, and Grace is starting to unravel. When the madness of modern-day motherhood finally pushes her to the brink, Grace and her friends decide to ditch the men in their lives, move in together, and create a mummune, sharing the load of chores, school pickups and drop-offs, and endless life admin. The new setup seems like a dream, but is life in this utopian village all it's cracked up to be? So before Tori reads the first chapter of Grace Under Pressure, I asked her to tell us a bit about her writing process and how she came to write this book. I love listening to these responses because every writer is different and you can always learn something new. I hope you're enjoying them too. So here is Tori Hashka, who will be reading from her debut novel, Grace Under Pressure. Hi, I'm Tori Hashka and I'm the author of Grace Under Pressure. Valerie asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter, so here it goes. First question is, what inspired me to write this story? Um, I think people start to write novels when there's an idea that they have that won't leave them alone. Um, mine came to me from whispers that I heard from women in Pilates classes and on the side of soft play parks with their kids. It was something that was said by women who had been rescued by their female friends. Um, and the idea was, what if we lived in a village of women? Um, that sense of female solidarity was something that I just was just seemed very delicious to me. Um, so Grace was then born. It was a novel about the pressure of trying to do it all, some of the um, hilarious complexities of parenting in um, in a digital age, and the you know harmful indignities that can come with motherhood as well. But mainly, it was about the saving grace of female friendship. Um, Grace was an idea that once it arrived, it wouldn't leave me. And I probably talked about it too much. And then one of my oldest friends, Alice Hamilton, turned to me one day and was like, Tori, can you just write it? Can you just write it? Um, and so I started. Um, second question, can you describe your writing process? 
Um, it's probably a little bit unorthodox. Um, when I started writing Grace, I was um, trying to cobble together a copywriting career. I had been a food writer and I was at home with two children. Um, so I wrote whenever I got the chance. But Grace was certainly, you know, had an elephant's pregnancy. Um, I would tap out notes to it, you know, on my phone a lot of the time on the side of skateboard ramps, um, on the side of all sorts of parks, you know, while I was sitting in the car waiting for kids to come out and pick up. Um, and then when I would get a chance later on when the kids were finally asleep, I would pour myself a glass of wine, put on some music and try and stitch together some flow from there. Um, the scenes that sort of came into the book, there were some scenes in the book that I always knew would be in it, even from the very beginning. Um, I knew that there had to be a birthday party, a kid's birthday party in the book somewhere. Um, to me, a child's birthday party, you know, the, the first few of them are a chrysalis of so many of the anxieties that you can have in modern day motherhood. Um, there's the eco-anxiety of whether balloons are okay and what can go in the party bags. There's the allergy anxiety of, you know, nuts and dairy. Um, there's the peer pressure of trying to present an image that, you know, it's all under control and save face when really you're exhausted and not coping at all. Um, or maybe that it was just me. Um, and then there was some cinematic moments that um, sort of popped into my head and I would sketch them out and I knew that I wanted to find a place for them in the book. One of them was this notion of um, just walking under the waves and rage screaming. Um, it was something that I've been tempted to do a few times and considering the book's location of um, Freshwater Beach, uh, on the northern beaches of Sydney almost became a character in itself. I knew that that had to find its way into the story. So in terms of stitching together a plot, you know, um, some people say they're pantsers and some people say they're plotters. I'm definitely a plotter. Um, I don't do much things without really thinking them through. And so it was, you know, it was pretty old school to start with, with a whole bunch of sticky notes that sort of found its way up onto my wall and I would sort of move them around to see which order um, it would happen. But then tying, trying to pick up all the threads and, and tie them together at the end, um, that was certainly that was certainly challenging, but a great sense of satisfaction when I knew, you know, how the, how the story could resolve itself. Um, so in terms of, you know, how I actually get the writing done, um, you know, most of the real work came to me in the rewriting, um, of it. The first version of Grace, which slid into my agent, Catherine Drayton's, um, inbox, um, was a hot mess. It was definitely a hot mess. Um, it had a terrible title to it, but there was a premise to it of, you know, of the mumune, of this idea of women coming together to live, um, to share the burden of life admin, um, and to raise their children in solidarity that I think she found intriguing. And so I'm very grateful that she took the time to workshop the plot with me and massage it into what it is today. And then my publisher, Castabello, also had some fantastic insights to help um, find the balance in the book between satire and sympathy. Um, and that was a really tricky, tricky thing to pull off. Um, but in terms of the writing also, you know, I don't think you're ever really done with a book. You know, it's really hard to know when to, when to step aside, apart from, you know, a deadline crashing on top of you. Um, and looking at it now in its published form, like I know there are things that I would like to go back and change about it. Um, I know that the birth scene in it, um, it happens too quickly. And I think it happens too quickly because I was too close to it um, when I was trying to write it. And now that my 
youngest is four, I feel like I have enough distance to be able to perhaps go back and, and write a birth um, with, with a bit more clarity. Um, so maybe I'll go back and fix it or maybe that'll just be in the next book that I do. Um, next question, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Um, structural edits are really hard and I don't think there's a writer who wouldn't say that. Um, for me, it was the transition from being a food writer um, to to a novelist. That was was the hurdle that I had to get over. Um, in the beginning, Grace, uh, Grace, the protagonist of the book, is a food writer and there were recipes that were peppered all the way through the book as it traced her pregnancy going from a poppy seed, the size of a poppy seed and the pregnancy starts, all the way to, you know, the baby's the size of a pumpkin at the end and it sort of traces the food, you know, the comparable food as it, as it goes through. Um, and each chapter was around that and each chapter had, you know, the recipe included in it. Um, and that was one of the first pieces of feedback that I had was that the recipes took you out of the narrative flow. If they were going to live anywhere, they had to live in the back of the book, but they were definitely, you know, they were a crutch that I was using. And so it was a real leap of faith to go, okay, so this is, this is just a straight novel now. Okay. What is, what does that look and feel like? Um, so that was that was definitely challenging. The other challenging aspect, I think, you know, many writers who are parents um, or mothers, even more particularly, might might sympathise with, is that, um, you know, it's really hard to find the time <laughs> to to write, um, particularly when you're in the trenches and your children um, are at that grasping, all needing age. Um, I saw once that Rebecca Sparrow wrote that women tend to write in the hemlines of a day, um, and that was definitely true for me. Um, writing felt like, you know, a secret that I was keeping or a, or a kind of art therapy that I was doing. And it was only when Grace was picked up by my agent that I felt like, you know, I could, I could justify spending more time on what had been, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a questionable habit <laughs> that I'd do at night. Um, fourth question, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? Um, Grace Under Pressure covers a little bit of dark terrain in it. Um, it's got a cover that looks, you know, very jolly and cheerful, but I think anybody who is a parent um, could probably agree that, you know, there is there is shade that goes with the light. Um, and one of the favourite books that I read last year was a piece of non-fiction by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, and it's called Burnout. Um, and they talk about how one of the ways that we can relieve the stress cycle that finds its way into our body is to be able to digest what's happened through some kind of creative endeavour. Um, so this book really was a bit of art therapy for me as I was trying to process those pretty murky years of sleep deprivation and new motherhood. Um, and so the most rewarding thing for me was probably that addictive process of when you actually get into flow of, um, you know, and, and when the words just the words just come. Um, a lot of the work is graft, but, you know, when you actually get there and then the next day when you get to read back what you've written and, you know, it works, um, that's pretty magic. Um, the other thing that's been really rewarding is now that it's out in the world, um, hearing from women who can see themselves in the book um, and they feel like their struggles have a place on the page. And, um, you know, some of those messages that I've been getting have been pretty priceless. Um, Fifth, one of my top three tips to aspiring writers. Um, okay. First one would be um, just write it down, as in, as in observe the world that is around you all the time. So take notes on your phone when you see something's quirky or you have a fleeting thought because, you know, it's one day you will be sitting at your desk 
and you will look up and find it either on your phone or on a post-it note that you've transposed it to and you will be very, very grateful that you have something to lean on. Um, the second one would be to read as much as you can in your genre. Um, some people say that they they can't they can't read while they're writing. I'm the opposite. Um, for one, I think writers need to be able to support each other um, and bookshop owners. Um, I certainly, you know, that that sense of collaboration um, and, you know, the collegiate atmosphere between other writers I just think is so, so precious. Um, and, yeah, being able to have the words of other brilliant women, you know, floating around in my head um, is, is really such a tonic to me. Um, and the third one I'd say is, Keep your work really close. Um, just like you don't need to tell anyone the name of your baby until it's born, you really don't need to show anyone your work until it's done. So, you know, don't let anyone pressure you into showing something before it's ready. Um, and, you know, if somebody doesn't like it, um, you know, they may just not be your people. We don't all like the same things. So have faith in your own taste. Um and I guess those would be my main tips. Okay, I'm now going to read the first chapter of Grace Under Pressure, and I really hope you like it. Chapter one, chicken poppy seed pie. Grace Harkness was stealing herself for another stretch of hashtag solo suppers. At the bottom of her whitewashed stairs lay the flotsam of parenthood, folded footsie pyjamas, sippy cups, desiccated comfort bunnies, Orphan shoes and snack boxes with cut grapes and nut-free bliss balls. Next to them stood a stout, black, carry-on suitcase. This would be Greg's sixth trip in as many weeks. Her husband's boarding passes now listed Singapore, Bangkok, Seoul, Jakarta, Manila, and now somewhere else entirely. It was hard to keep up. Thank God for find my friends on Grace's phone. Find my spouse, more like it. Grace tried to swallow the sudsy backwash of a Rennie. She'd taken it in the vain hope that the antacid would quell the upheaval she felt. Somewhere in the kitchen there was a cup of tepid Earl Grey tea. Making tea was an act of optimism. Perhaps today she'd get to drink it hot, she mused, as she pulled out the sodden tea bag and traipsed it over to the bin. This wasn't what she thought motherhood would taste like. Grace spied a glimpse of her face in the hall mirror as she caught Greg at their jaunty yellow front door. Her angled cheeks were rockful green and her upper lip was beaded with sweat. She reached for his starched French cuff. Her spouse of ten years recoiled. Grace, you look terrible. Do you guys have gastro again? Because I've got two presentations tomorrow, so can you maybe keep your distance? Greg kicked aside a piece of Lego with a practice sweep. His mind had already checked into the pinstripe civility of the airport lounge, with its calming click of keyboards and the gentle clink of cutlery slicing through poached eggs and sourdough toast. No. They needed to have a conversation. I thought you were going to be here for a while, she said, as she reached out for him, trying not to sound desperate. You know I have to go. I think it's just going to be one more trip. I have a boss to answer to, he parried with brisk efficiency as he grabbed his suitcase. His Uber beeped from the curb. He was already looking beyond her. As he shut the door and strode down the driveway, Grace realised he hadn't let her know when he was coming back, or if she was going to be okay. It was just assumed that she would be. Grace would handle it. She gripped the banister until her knuckles turned white. Mum! 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 came the walls from the other room. Breathe. Grace pressed the heels of her hands to her eyes to steady herself before turning to face her own two tiny bosses. On her way, she collected four rogue Tupperware containers and returned them to the sink. Grace looked back at where Greg's suitcase had stood. She wasn't sure if she could even make it to the local shops with their two children and a mere seven kilos of accessories in tow. 
In their Carrara kitchen, Grace and Greg's four-year-old son, Harry, was a cauldron of fury. He'd just discovered that his father had cleared away the elaborate commune he'd built of his superheroes. In a Hulk-esque meltdown, Harry tore the head off his plastic Thor and hurled him at the stacking sliding doors that opened onto the hardwood deck. He was wailing with remorse and now refusing to eat any breakfast in a gesture of solidarity with his now headless hero. Grace attempted to reattach the plastic head with craft glue while simultaneously shoveling a porridge-like slurry of seeds, ancient grains and earnestness into Harry's baby sister. Occasionally, Grace would stop to slug back a swampish-coloured smoothie made from frozen spinach, pineapple, mint, banana and chia seeds. Hashtag drink your greens. Above her head, a clock ticked. Grace had spent her career honing her skills in a corporate and culinary environment where efficiency was prized above everything. She was a communications professional and a chef. She had three glossy cookbooks under her belt, a battery of aspirational clients, and an Instagram following that made the pillow-lipped girls at influencer agencies sit up straight. Grace was a woman who got things done. Motherhood came as whiplash. Her first year of parenthood passed in a manic haze. Grace had been so high after Harry's birth that she'd sign on to to produce a new cookbook before her milk had even come in. How hard can it be, she thought. He'll sleep and I'll work. Famous last words. As Grace scurried about collecting what she needed for the morning, containers of sliced apple, a Ziploc bag with spare shorts and underpants in it for Harry, he was toilet trained, but the one day she forgets will always be the one day he has an accident in the supermarket and her shopping list, she cast her mind back to how bullishly optimistic she'd been in those early days and laughed. Her theory of doing it all might have held, if the baby had slept, but Harry did not get that memo. He had occasionally submitted to sleep, but only when he was attached to Grace. He was lulled into silence by the white noise of an immersion blender, and Grace tried not to slosh scalding drips from her tasting spoon onto his peach-soft skull. She thought that was as gritty as it was going to get. Then that lambent infant unfurled into a hurling hurricane just as she stepped back into the breach to nurse a sequel. That was when Grace realised she knew next to nothing. As Grace wrestled everybody into the car, she realised Ruby was wearing odd shoes. She didn't have the stomach for the fight. They'd already gone three rounds over the way she'd cut Ruby's toast. There were few things as cumbersome as soldering through a day with a toddler shackled to your side. Sure, there was the slumping physicality of lugging a 15-kilogram sack of squidge, mashed banana and breakable bones around, but it was the capricious whims of a toddler's mood that made simple tasks insurmountable. A lisped yes could tumble into no with little logic or warning, a no would occasionally escalate to a biting fit. Sometimes these meltdowns could be triggered by something as banal as the colour of a balloon. Grace was sure that modern frustration has no sharper point than a sleep-starved mother hissing at the automatic supermarket checkout area that there are no excess fucking items in the bagging area while her off-screen keened behind her in a trolley. On any one of these excursions, one of Grace's children would predictably claim with panicked zeal I need to do a wee now, mummy, while the other smashed a piece of complimentary fruit into their cheek. It was enough to make Grace want to steal avocados out of spite. The ability to grocery shop alone and waft through daily errands with nothing but time for contemplation were luxuries of ease that Grace traced in her memory like phantom limbs. That was life BC, before children. Why don't you put the kids into more care? You're just making a rod for your back. That was Greg's brutally logical retort whenever Grace tried to illuminate her triggers. Why? Because it was bloody expensive and her freelance work schedule was capricious. Because in care, they got sick. The incessant fifing hack of bronchiolitis slipped forward in her memory with terrifying ease. Bronchiolitis wasn't even a word she'd known how to spell before she had Ruby. Now she had it down pat. That had been a long, hard winter. 
Because there was no government rebate for nannies and the good ones wanted more money an hour than Grace currently pocketed after tax, the burden of paying for childcare was also somehow assumed to be hers. Because there was a voice in her head that was passed down from generations before that told her that that wasn't what good mothers did. Why did you even have children if you don't want to spend time with them, was the question that echoed in her head. Grace was trying to be good. She really was. She should have aborted this morning's shopping trip before it even started. But she had three recipes due by close of business today and a virtual cooking class to prepare for the collateral for. She needed the ingredients. Grace ached for the days when she could nip into the Sainsbury's below their flat in London and pick up slim fillets of sea bass and broccolini without a second thought. Tender stem. That's what they called it there. These days, broccoli was food for, broccolini was food for the childless. Stout little woodlands of budget-appeasing broccoli. That was the landscape in which she now dwelled. Ruby sat nestled in the trolley behind Harry. While she may have had the face of a cherub, most days she performed a solid impression of a banshee. The terrible twos had come early for Ruby. Perhaps she was advanced. Her favourite activities were tipping bottles of rice milk onto the floor and spitting paracetamol syrup back at Grace like a petulant dragon. To keep her quiet, Grace had placed a quarter of a watermelon in the seat next to her. Ruby had punctured the protective plastic wrap and was transferring fistfuls of melon into her mouth while Grace searched for the poppy seeds she needed to finish testing a recipe. By this stage of parenthood, Grace had determined that a successful shopping trip with children could be measured by four criteria. One, how many of the intended items did you forget? Two, how many bribes did you have to purchase? Three, how many times did you whisper, for fuck's sake, under your breath? Four, did you physically threaten your child with a vegetable? A mark of less than 10 was enough to count the trip as a success. Today, Grace's score was 14. She had just poked Harry in the rib with a telegraph cucumber to stop him from ejecting the eggplants from the trolley. Harry did not enjoy eggplants. It was a texture thing. She'd sure she'd been seen doing it too. It was a rare shopping expedition when Grace wasn't spotted by someone who knew her or knew of her. She was always on show. Grace, so great to see you. Today it was one of the other mums at Harry's kindergarten who frequented a few of Grace's cooking classes. She wore consciously crumpled hemp pyjamas and was vegan. Grace thought about the classic joke. How can you tell if someone's vegan? Just wait five minutes and they'll tell you all about it. It was funny because it was true. Grace couldn't for the life of her remember her name. Leaf, Dawn, Fern. From her memory, her social media handle was holistically pure, which was little help. Grace hissed, sit down, at Harry through a forced smile. She saw the sancti mum clock the contents of the trolley and grimace when she saw the chicken thighs in there. Her disappointment was clear. Grace sighed. At least they were organic. Grace, I haven't seen you in forever. I loved that brothy bean recipe you posted last month. The Idzuki beans were inspired. I'm guessing you're swamped. Are you swamped? Swamped. Sure. That was one word for it. So great to see you, lovely. Grace trilled as Ruby continued to fist melon into her face and Harry threatened to eject another eggplant. Got to fly. When she got to the checkout, a slack-jawed young man in a well-worn, fresh-as-best uniform looked quizzically at her. What happened to the melon? he asked, looking at its busted green skeleton and Ruby's stained shirt. I dropped it, Grace said po-faced, as she reached down and pulled out more of her reusable cotton bags. At least she had remembered them. Grace somehow managed to get her children back into the oversized SUV without any injury to life or limb. The paranoid image of wee toes being swallowed by the te metal teeth on the escalator verge was one that was hard to shake. She paused to post a photo with one hand of her boot overflowing with aspirational verdant greens. Hashtag my kind of haul. As Grace buckled her children into their seats, she took a sip of satisfaction from the percussive clip, 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 and her children's compliance. 
She kissed them both on their heads, the punctuation of parenthood, then carefully drove back towards freshwater and tried to remember to breathe. She continued on her rounds, depositing Harry at his coastal-themed kindy without any tantrums and for all further requests from the centre manager to volunteer her time. Harry was at kindy because she didn't have enough time. She answered a text message from one of her bosses, Stella, the marketing manager at Fresh's Best, confirming that one of the cake recipes she'd sent through should be tagged as nut-free and promised she would send the rest of the recipes in by the end of the day. She then turned back home with Ruby in tow and reopened the half-written list that was marching through her head. Ruby began to wail. Grace stopped to, tried to stop her stress from cresting. The tide of nausea she was battling didn't help. Grace opened the car windows. The air outside was crisp and clean. The beach was just four minutes from her front door. Fresh water appeared as a smug smile of sand, flanked by sandstone cliffs. Most days, Grace felt like she was living against an Instagram background that required no filter. Those like Grace, who grew up in freshwater, clung to their privilege tighter than the surfers held onto their boards. This is why Australia is the lucky country. Local mums in printed leggings would congratulate each other while pushing their mini-me's on the beachside swings. But freshwater today was different to the suburb where Grace had first learned to duck under the waves. It was now a place where interlopers thought nothing of dropping 14 million on the last remaining beachside cottage so they could dig an adjacent swimming pool without the hassle of getting council approval. It became a place where image was everything, gossip ran fast, and loyalties held firm. Once you were in its thrall, it was hard to muster the motivation to leave. There's a reason they call the northern beaches the Insular Peninsula. Freshwater was a gilded cage that people took pride in locking themselves into. It could send you mad if you let it. Grace had always assumed that her anxiety was just a pilot fish of her personality and something that helped her function at a relatively high level. It was what made her sharp. Then she had her children, and her pilot fish morphed into a shark. The prospect of another indefinable stretch of solo wrangling loomed large. The spectre of the poppy seed-sized disaster in her uterus weighed like a whale. Grace pulled over and reached again for her digital crutch. She unlocked her phone and sent a hopeful plea to the name at the top of her message history. Her safety net pinged back with a series of emojis, a smiley face, a thumbs up, and a kiss. As Grace scraped the front of her car across Petra's driveway, the front door opened and Grace's stalwart friend shepherded Ruby straight into a game with her youngest child, who was building Atlantis out of kinetic stand. Nobody could craft a make-believe world like Petra. Petra pushed Grace's long hair off her forehead and looked directly at her. Have you eaten? You have crazy eyes on. Petra never wasted much time with niceties. That was the shorthand of old friends. Grace barreled on. I just have to find these poppy seeds. I need them for this afternoon and... And I just don't have it in me to tackle another grocery shop with Ruby in tow. I get it. Petra really did. She kissed Grace on the forehead the same way that Grace did her children and pushed her out the door. Afterwards, go get a coffee and a muffin and talk to the waves for a few minutes. We're good here. Unencumbered, Grace moved with slick efficiency. She found the poppy seeds at the small grocer in Brookvale, the same one she and Petra had dubbed Kale Broom last year after the owner was seen sweeping the floor with a bunch of brassicas before putting them back on the shelf for sale. Once the poppy seeds were sorted, Grace picked up an almond chai in her keep cup and made her way to the tiered timber beach lookout. Luxuriating in silence, she tapped out her list for the day. Today I will. Grace always wrote, today I will, rather than to do. It was a hack she'd picked up from an efficiency podcast, and it was supposed to make her more accountable to herself. 1. Test chicken pie recipe, photograph. 2. Three Instagram posts. Cue the quinoa-sponsored post for next week. Three, two washing in, out, fold, away. 
Sew the button back on Harry's blue shirt. Make more banana oat cookies for the kids' morning teas. Invoices, asthma drugs, keep the kids alive. Be grateful. Build my village. The last few sounded like they belonged on a motivational poster accompanied by a photo of a mob of curious meerkats, the sort that hapless executives tack above their desks. Yet it was an instruction Grace scribed daily. It had come from a wise woman. Her words echoed back to Grace whenever things got particularly gritty. Grace, everyone needs a village. We're not supposed to mother alone. We need aunties and nonnas and sisters and friends. At the time, Grace had been stumped when she'd asked, Who do you have? Grace's mind had reeled to blankness. And then she'd realised that she had Petra. Petra was the only reason she could find the horizon most days. These days we need to build our own villages, Grace. As she drove away from the beach and towards her daughter's indigo eyes and marshmallow cheeks, Grace wondered how she could repay Petra for her help this morning. Chicken, poppy seed, pie. Grace would finish testing the recipe this afternoon and photograph it during golden hour. She'd then drop it around for Petra and her husband Stuart's dinner. Her own spouse would be eating chicken satay and wild rice at 40,000 feet. Once the children were safely asleep, Grace would be content with a solo dinner of pie scraps. Who knew? Maybe she could even make it Instagram worthy. Hashtag no waste. As she rounded the final bend, Grace felt a swelling of satisfaction, secure in the knowledge that at least one freshwater family would be sitting down to a plate full of comfort tonight. I'm so impressed with this opening chapter. Through Grace, Tori has really captured all the pressure that modern mums are under and she's done it with a strong and unique voice. This, I'm sure, is going to resonate not just with mums, but with anyone who is trying to do it all and live that perfect Instagrammable life, which, of course, we know deep down is not possible at all in reality. By the way, I've heard of people writing out in, you know, in front of their school or while waiting for soccer practice, but I'm pretty sure Tori is probably one of the first of our guests, well, the first of our guests to say that she writes at the side of the skate park. Grace Under Pressure by Tori Hashka is out now with Simon and & Schuster and it's available wherever you normally get your books. Now, if you've always dreamed of seeing your own book on the shelves of your local bookstore one day, why not finally pursue your creative passion? If you've never written before or if you've been dabbling for a while, the course Creative Writing Stage 1 at the Australian Writers' Centre is the perfect place to start. That's what Joanna Nell did, and she is now a published best-selling author of three feel-good novels that are just going so well. Let's listen to Joanna. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Joanna Nell had to say. It almost sounds a little bit melodramatic to say, but... The discovering the courses at the Australian Writers really did actually change my life. Through discovering writing, uh, I have completely had a new career. I must admit that I feel a much more sort of fulfilled and, and balanced person uh, as a result of that finding a channel for that creativity. The Creative Writing Stage 1 course was exactly the approach that I needed, that sort of nuts and bolts, step-by-step -step approach. One of the things I found the most useful in the course was actually also one of 
the most terrifying at, at, at the start, which was giving and receiving of critique, really is a very important way that a writer can improve. The other great aspects of being a member of the Australian Writers' Centre is that uh, that sense of community. Finding people who are like-minded, your people, your tribe. I'm the author of The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, which is my debut novel. And so really it was completely a dream come true. Often meet many people who say that they would like to write a book but don't know where to start or they have a story but they don't have the time to do it. And I think that this is where somewhere like the Australian Writers' Centre can really show them the way to do it, and it certainly did for me. Uh, and I think I'm you know, living proof of what they can achieve. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and, of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.